Hello, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, James Spender. James, how are you? How is I'm well, thanks, Joe. Good, I'm, good I'm, to hear I'm, from you. Uh, cycling. Yeah. Cycling in the sunshine, obviously. It's sunny and we love bikes, so that's what we do. Uh, I've been out and about on a gravel bike Nice. Uh, last uh, couple of days over this weekend. What have you been riding, James? What have you been on? Uh, it's a Bianchi Impulso All Road. So um, I think they also do an Impulso road bike. So the All Road is their gravel solution, and it's aluminium. I'm gonna. This is gonna sound a bit mean. It's not supposed to. It's a bit entry level. Yeah. But it is functional, and I'm growing to like it. Um, mainly because of the freedom it affords. You know, it is. Um, just amazing just to get off the roads and into the forest and is it as how's the frame been changed from the the road version have they sort of done anything to make it more gravel or have they just literally chucked some 40 millimeter tires on there and called it a gravel bike oh no 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 joe this is an italian gravel bike so the tires are 35 millimeters (laughs) okay which is already sure (laughs) they would assume that's way too wide i'm sure they probably wanted 28 uh the actual changes have they have changed you know it's the geometry Right. right so that's the fundamental thing. If people say, oh, yeah, what makes a gravel bike different to a road bike or a cross bike? Um, there are subtle um, geometrical tweaks. Uh, so the head tube angle is slightly slacker than on a road bike. So you get more stability over rougher ground, uh, bumpy stuff, and also um, at, at speed. But it does make the handling feel a bit slower than a road bike. So it's yeah. just not as responsive. Um and overall, therefore, the wheel, along with a couple of other little bits and bobs, the wheelbase is longer. Mm. And again, that just means it's more stable over rough stuff. I mean, if you imagine how easy it would be to fall off a unicycle pedaling along some tree roots versus a bike with two wheels versus a longer bike with two wheels, it's kind of like that, really. The longer a vehicle is, the better basically, the more better stability it is. But, but then again, you know, when you see a truck, reversing around a corner it's mm. having difficulty because it's got a long wheelbase so yeah you lose that handling responsivity yeah uh but yeah no so I'm, I'm really enjoying it and i'm looking forward to getting a new set of hoops for it as well from hunt they're sending some over to test uh downside with this bike is it doesn't come with tubeless tires which is a real a um, misstep a real misstep i think for any gravel bike doesn't matter yeah just does, doesn't really matter about the price point and this isn't a cheap bike. Um, it should at least come with the option to fit tubeless tires. So uh, so at least minimum tubeless rims in this day and age. But anyway, it doesn't. We're going to swap the wheels out. We're going to see how she goes. I've got high hopes. Uh, and it's a Bianchi. And I just, I do love it. I love a Bianchi. Oh, really be, and I, I hope that it's Celeste. I assume it's Celeste. <sighs> do you know what? I don't, I think, <laughs> I think it's got like one little Celeste. I was a bit oh. disappointed. It's matte black with a silvery fork and a kind of black on black sort of graphic. It looks pretty nice, but yeah, I, I really just want it to have a big old bowl bit of Celeste on it. And it's yeah. got a few little rings. It's kind of like owning there, a but... Ferrari, isn't it? If you own a Bianchi and it's not Celeste, it does, I don't know, it grates on me. Um, yeah. I, it, I just assume that if you're but... owning a Bianchi, it should be Celeste. But hey, I'm not here to judge those yeah. who are riding black bianchi bikes red bianchi bikes it's it's not from not my place really to judge 
Well, I mean, we can all judge if we like, Joe, just to keep it to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. However, uh, I'm sure that you have a bike and it would be a test bike and it will be a bike that you are allowed to pass judgment on in this. Uh, you know, we're in a safe space. We're in a safe so, space, mate. So tell me about it. Tell it, me what is it you're riding? Exactly like you, James. I've decided to get off of the road a little bit at the moment with the circumstances that we're all finding ourselves in at the moment. I wanted to, you know, get out of the people's way and I've got in a Canyon Grail AL. So everyone remembers Ooh. the Canyon Grail launching in 2018 and it was yep. it was known because it was Canyon's first sort of dedicated gravel bike, but the big headline grabber was the fact that it was released with that double decker handlebar. So a two leveled handlebar. Um the that, hover bar. The hover bar that looked completely insane um but was the idea was that you could have a real sort of upright geometry on the tops for greater stability and that the bar had been built with compliance so that when you was going over the rough stuff it was easier to ride um but then what happened was canyon basically released the al version last year which is an aluminium alternative to the carbon fiber range which is just sort of kind of like your general any man gravel bike so it's got traditional handlebars on it it's got that longer wheelbase it's got sort of that sort of easier geometry um and i've been riding it for a couple of days now and it's bloody fantastic it is so much fun unlike your bianchi it does come tubeless ready um so it comes out of the box it's tubeless out the box so it's got a set of dt dt swiss hoops on it uh with some schwable uh g1 tires which are excellent um off-road my ad um yeah can i start stop you there and ask you something tubeless tubeless out of the box yeah does it actually they're set up tubeless and they've got sealant in them yeah so they 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 they, arrived from canyon from germany ready to roll as a tubeless ready um tubeless bike so just you know pumped up the tires to 60 psi it's pretty dry out there and the, the sort of the routes that i've been riding around are not too technical to get up to about 60 psi right i've been taking it off road and it is so much more fun than hacking it around on the road at the moment um especially as sort of i'm limiting my riding to an hour an hour and a half with the government guidelines i find an hour an hour and a half off road you get so much more bang for your buck sort of in terms of a workout and just more mental sort of workout you get from that time an hour on a road bike for most of us is not that long and it goes by quite quickly but it always feels that if i'm off road taking on some of the trails around me that an hour seems like two or three and i have so much more fun and it's a lovely bike it's green as well it's a lovely sort of like pastely green color um so i know i've i'm pretty sure i know the exact bike you're talking about um our illustrious leader, uh, our editor at Cyclist Magazine, yeah. Pete, I think, actually owns one, doesn't he? He does. Um, so, but the green is different. Just remind so The you. green that he has, oh, is is more, different? Okay. his is like a foresty green, isn't it? It's a, quite a dark green. Whereas this is more like a, yep. this is a, a very much a pastel shade. It's a lot okay. lighter. And I posted a picture of it to social media. And I actually had four people reply, commenting on the color of the bike, two of which have no interest in bikes whatsoever. They just wanted to let me know that the bike color was lovely, um, 
So that's wow. some sort of yeah, you know, there's some kudos to Canyon needed there because that's, that's vindication. That's a good buy. Definitely, definitely. When I I saw one one of the people that I got the message from was like, oh, you definitely don't care about bikes, but the fact that you're commenting on the color means that you really took notice. Um, which obviously we shouldn't buy bikes based on their color, but it is a very important thing. But before we move oh, in, mate, move on, I just want to say about this growl. The last thing I want to say is I'm going to do a full review of it on cyclist.co.uk. And I know you're going to review the Bianchi on the website as well. So look out for yep. those. The the Canyon growl is also only 1600 quid, which really, wow. like having ridden it for the last couple of days, I'm I'm so bowled over by the fact that it, so it's 1599 and the bike is honestly so much fun. And the geometry on it's not too far away from the Endure Race, which is Canyon's um, endurance bike, road bike, endurance race bike. Yeah. So much so that for six, if, if you was to put a second set of wheels into this bike, say you bought, you know, a pair of carbon sort of midsection wheels with some 28 mil tires, this this thing would function completely fine on road. Um, and it's got the Shimano GRX group set. So it's got a 4830 chain set, I believe. And then an eleven thirty four in the back, so there's the gearing's absolutely fine for the road. Uh, and then you can swap it in for the your, your DT Swiss tubeless wheels and the, the Schwabble G ones, and you could ride it off road. And the thing like absolutely munches up over sand, rock, grass. It's absolutely perfect. Um, but honestly, for sixteen hundred quid, it just seems like such a steal uh, compared to some of the price yeah, wow. of, of some bikes, you know. Um, which is one thing that I'm I'm really starting to that I've been so impressed with I I think from riding the bike is just how much fun I get for the cost I guess you bang you bang for your buck massive bang for your buck um so James I think we we should sort of say what we're going to talk about in this episode of the podcast so the magazine recently turned a hundred that's right a hundred issues of Cyclist magazine um it's been a long hundred issues. James, you've been there since issue one. I came about in about issue 78, maybe even a bit earlier. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about issue 100, specifically the big ride, which was to a mountain in the north of Italy. And the writer of that feature was was my good self. So James is going to ask me some questions about that. Uh, we're then going to talk about Eddie Merck's bikes. So Eddie Merck's is the greatest cyclist of all time. He also had a bike range, and it just so happens that our very James Spender is an absolute fanatic about the bikes and the brands. We're going to question him about why he is such a fan. And if we get time at the end, we are going to discuss a cyclist, cycling sponsor from the past, uh, whose background may be a little bit of a surprise. So, Joe, I don't know whose palms you had to grease, but issue 100 has you on the front cover. It's a very prestigious slot. You're looking, you're looking good. You're looking bella in cellar, as the Italians say, <laughs> looking good in the saddle. And which is lucky because you were in Italy and you're riding with an Italian fella who, I mean, let's be honest, most Italian people look pretty good on bikes, like they're born on them. Yeah. So you have some serious competition. I think you held the British end up congratulations thank you and congratulations on the article i read it cheers which you know we obviously read everything but i've i've read it a couple of times 
because uh, I've got a lot of time on my hands <laughs> and I wanted to refresh my memory for now. And it did actually raise a few questions this time around. Go ahead. Um, because I was trying to analyze it a little bit more. Right. Really get to the, like, what, what made you tick during that ride. And the first question I'd like to ask you, because this ride is 33 kilometers long of a climb. Is that correct? Well, officially it's 22K, but you are yep. going uphill for 33 kilometers. So, so I, that's far. If you was, if, uphill. Yeah, if you, was, if you was a tourist and you went and tackled the climb, you'd tell people it's 33 kilometers long. Okay. And that's what you're telling That's what you're telling. That's what I, I, that's what I told what the reader told and I'm telling you yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and, you, and you're starting at 500 meters. You're basically you're making a near two kilometer uh, vertical gain yeah. over that 33 kilometers uh, uphill, which is, so basically, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good day out already. And that's only, um, what, a third of the overall ride? I think it was, what, 80, 90k or something? It was about 80k by, so, by the time you've got back down okay. into the valley, yeah. Yep. Um, and we should, oh, I've, I just realised, haven't even really described where it is. So tell me first, where is this ride? It's in Italy. Yep. But where so is it? So it's in the Piedmont region, which is in the northwest of Italy. Uh, Piedmont's known mostly for the city of Turin, Torino. Um, which is one of the big, big industrial cities in the north of the, of the country. But that's a little bit further north. This is near a city called Cuneo. Cuneo is basically the biggest town in that region. Um, and the climb that we tackled, uh, the Colle Fognera, it is out of Cuneo by about half an hour's ride. Um, and it is a big ascent in the Cotian Alp. I, you'll notice I called it the Colle Fognera earlier. Um, but actually, if you went and chatted to a local in one of the little villages along the ascent, they wouldn't call it the Colle Fognera. Uh, they'd call it the Colle de Morte, which translates to the Pass of the Dead. Um, now, that right. sounds quite okay. dark, doesn't Why? it? I mean, that sounds quite sinister. That yeah, is very, very sinister, sinister, but there's a reason it's got this sinister name, right? So basically, in the 18th century, the area of Piedmont was controlled by the Duchy of uh, Savoyard which was just like a little a house at the time of, of, of noblemen. Uh, and as is the case in the 18th and 19th century, everyone was always at war. And at this very time, the Saviard duchy was at war with the French and the Spanish. Um, and there was a battle on the, on the climb near the, the top. And basically the Saviard troops stoned a battalion of the French and Spanish armies to death. Uh, but what made it really gruesome was the fact that actually in the valleys below, in the Valle Grana and the Valle de Arma, they'd already declared peace. So there was basically hundreds of troops died on the ascent of the, this climb, despite the war of having ended. Uh, so from that moment onwards, wow. the locals who lived along the climb and in the area, they, they called it the Pass of the Dead, the Colle de Morte. Um, and then even worse was then in the 1930s, uh, there was a couple, Romolo and Luisa Contini, and they'd eloped in Italy, right? And they'd, so they'd got married. Mm -hmm. But Italy was a fascist state at this time. So they wanted to escape and they wanted to get across the border to France, which was illegal. But they wanted to basically look for a better life in France. Um, and so they, they were last seen heading up the Fonniera to basically go over the pass and then descend down into France. But then a couple of days later, Luisa... The, the woman she was found dead in a ravine at, on the slopes of the Colle de Morte 
and they arrested him, uh, the husband Romolo, and he was found guilty of her murder. Um, so for many years, this, this ascent was known for being quite dark and having quite somber stories attached to it. Uh, and hence why it's called the Colle de Morte, right? I'm now wondering why, why is it not called the Colle de Morte? Why, why call it the uh, Fonera? So th- the reason it's called the Colle Fonera is because of the Giro d'Italia. So the Colle Fonera has only been in the Giro d'Italia once, right? And it had to wait until 1999 mm-hmm. to do so. So basically, in this area, Caraglio, which is the town at the very bottom of the climb in Cuneo, there was a guy called Ferruccio Dardanello, who was like a local politician, but he was like one of these guys who was pretty pretty well known in the area, and he made things happen in the local area. Turns out he was he's also... That guy. He's He's that guy. He, he brings... You know, everyone would kind of know him. His face was very well known in the area. But it turns out he was also really good friends with a man called Carmen Castellano, who was the organiser of the Giro d'Italia. So Castellano is what Christian Prudhomme is to the Tour de France today, or Maroveni is to the Giro, right? He's the guy who designs the course for the Giro every day, every year, sorry. So Dardanello rings up Castellano and says, look, mate, I've got a climb in the Cotillon Alps near Cuneo called the Colle Fonera. The Giro's never been there, but you need to come and see it. You need to come include it in the race it's amazing so castellana goes okay i'll come and see the climb so joins dardanello they, they drive up the climb and, and castellano's bowled over he's like wow this is so basically for the 22 kilometers of official ascent the first sort of eight nine k is through like forest and it follows a river and it's beautiful and serene it's quite steep it's very steep actually at the bottom it's, there's parts that are like 12 to 15 percent but the last 10k are completely exposed and you can see the entire valley behind you as it sort of disappears into the ground. And there's no sort of forest or vegetation near the top. It's quite bare and barren because of how exposed it is. So you can, it really has a full sight of, of the mountains around. And Castellano's like, wow, this, this climb, it needs to be in the Giro. But there was a problem. The, the descent down into into De Monte, into the other side of the valley, was terrible. It's never wider than six metres. The road surface is mainly, it was mainly gravel. It wasn't even tarmac. And you couldn't take a peloton down there. So Castellano's like, look, I can't take the Giro up and down this climb. It's too dangerous. But I want to do it. So Dardanello, he says, turns to Dardanello and says, look, what you need to do is you need to resurface this climb. But also, I'm Italian, so I'm Catholic. I can't be taking a race over the pass of the dead. It's not good for my superstitions. You need to rename the climb. And it just so happens that there's like a little craggy, cresty rock near the summit that's called the Fonera. And Dardanello goes, okay, don't worry. I'll take, I'll take care of things. A couple of weeks pass. The descent's already been resurfaced. And Dardanello goes, oh, and by the way, it's called the Colle Fonera now. It's not the Colle de Morte. So... From that moment onwards, in 1999, which is only 21 years ago, the climb changed its name. They sorted the the descent, and then in the 1999 Giro d'Italia, stage 14, from Bra to Borgo San Dalmazo, the, the Colle Fenero, uh took place and had its sort of day in the sun in Italy's biggest race, James. Yeah. Well, I've not heard of it. I'm going to be honest. I've yeah. not heard of it. So I'm assuming, has it has it been back <coughs> since at all? No, so the, how many this, this is Giro? this is the thing. Like no one's no one's heard of this climb. 
you'll get a couple of guys who are you know you'll get the real like the boffins of cycling they'll they'll remember the climb from when it was in the 1999 Giro um because of the performance that a certain Marco Pantani put put out on that day but because it has only it's only actually ever been in the Giro once it was meant to return in 2001 but I don't know if you remember in 2001 there was something called the San Remo Blitz, which was when the Italian police force raided the Giro d'Italia looking for drugs, as was sometimes the case in the early 2000s, um, in a bus that it angered the peloton so much that they refused to ride stage 18. And then stage 18 was meant to be the Colifoniera. Um, And then ever since, organisers haven't taken the race there. Um, But there's quite a good reason for that. And that's because logistics mean that something like the Fonera can't be in the Giro every year. So every time the Giro announces a stage that goes above 2,000 metres of altitude, it's taking the risk. So if when the Giro says, oh, we're going to the Stelvio, we're going to the Agnello, or we're going to the Gavia, they can't guarantee that in May or June, the weather will have improved enough that the pass is actually rideable and that the snow has sort of subsided enough. And you only have to look back at last year when they had to scrap the Gavia because of weather conditions at the top and the fact that there was still snow to realise that this is the case. But what makes it worse is that unlike the Stelvio or the Agnello, the Fonera is a totally wild climb where, you know, the Stelvio has doesn't just have cycling uh, tourists go up there. It has motorbikes. It has people driving, people just wanting to see the view at the top. So the authorities do quite a big job to clear the Stelvio. The Fonero clears naturally. It's rideable when the snow's melted. And when I visited last June, in late June, I may add, at the end of a heat wave of 40 degrees, five days or 40 degrees back to back, there was still snow at the top. So the Giro, oh, wow. yeah, the Giro basically can't risk saying, oh, okay, we're going to take a stage to the Fonero because the chances are it won't be clear in time and they'll just have to rearrange the route. Um, and they lucked out in 1999, which was really lucky because it ended up being an incredible stage um, where it was won by Paolo uh, Salvadelli, but the, the stage was remembered for the performance that a certain Marco Pantani put on that particular ascent on that day. So how did, how did, how did Pantani put in such an amazing performance? Well, he's notable for him, and then I mean, the stage. He's you know you don't need to know much about cycling to know that Pantani's you know for his flaws and for some of the things that we we know about him now he's probably the, one of the most naturally gifted climbers of all time, and he was not in pink at the start of the stage that was Laurent Jalabert, a French rider, but he saw the Fonera as an opportunity to really stamp his authority on the race. He was the defending champion, obviously having won it in ninety eight. And so he basically attacked from the bottom of the Fonera, 22 kilometers out, um, and managed to drop Jalabert. He dropped uh, Juan Miguel Jimenez and Alex Zul, who are two of his other big rivals. Um, and he managed to basically shed everyone by the top of the, the climb. So much so that he knew that he was going to be in pink by the end of the day. So he took it really easy on the descent, uh, was overtaken by Salvadelli, who went on to win the stage. Um, he eventually was also caught Pantani by a couple of riders, but by the end of the day, he'd, he'd secured pink and he had the race sort of firmly in his hand. And a lot of people say that actually Pantani's performance on the Fonera that day was better than the Galibier the year before in the Tour de France, where he 
did that amazing solo attack um, to help them win the 1998 Tour de France. But the the sad thing oh. is, is that Pantani does this performance on the Fonniera, rides into pink, and he you know he's going to defend his Giro title. It, there's no doubt about it. No one's catching him. He's in a class of his own. But then obviously, f- what, five or six days later, he returns a hematocrit of over 50. He's expelled from the race. He's, you know, while still in pink. And that really acted as the catalyst for the long descent of Pantani's life, which obviously ends in grave tragedy tragedy in 2004 when he takes his own life. Um, so it's really poignant, actually. And hence why there's a statue of uh, Pantani at the very summit of the Fonniera. Oh, interesting. Because you know, I've, I've seen statues of Pantani uh, in various parts of Italy. Yeah. Uh, most, uh, yeah, as you might imagine, his hometown of uh, Cesenatico. Yeah. There's a big one. And yeah, there's um, he, there's one on the Motorola as well. He's a popular and... man to, uh, to sculpt. Oh, is there? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The so Galibier as well. I was thinking, well. like, I wonder how many statues, I wonder how many statues there are of Pantani in the mm. world or up, up to the top of mountains. Because as you say, most naturally gifted climber uh, of his generation, if not of all time, perhaps, mm. and somebody that really struck at the heartstrings of a lot of people and has that incredibly, that beautiful tragedy about his life where yeah. it was cut short. Um, he was cut short in his prime as a racer in terms of, I suppose, the opportunities he was afforded because of things like EPO bans and teams dropping him and horrendous injuries. Mm. Uh, and then he just that he was that mercurial figure and he just never quite managed to wear his ability um, in that way that a lot of sportsmen or sports people sadly seem to. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of those in football. Aren't there those people that are uh, sort of deeply troubled beneath their brilliance? And well, Pantani was I, one. I so. often compare Pantani a lot to Diego Maradona, the footballer, right? Yeah. So Maradona is this guy who is just clearly the most naturally gifted footballer of his generation, if not ever. You know, maybe Lionel Messi since has overtaken him, but Maradona had this just clear natural ability. But he's also such a troubled human being you know and there are so many parallels if you look at Pantani and Diego Maradona's life there are so many parallels where they're both they basically also both became too famous for their own good and they became too big within their own world one within cycling one within football that they couldn't handle it basically and they turned to things very both of them as well in in terms of they both turn to cocaine use and you see kind of a you you witness this spiral in the public spotlight which we did with both Pantani and Maradona obviously Pantani was gravely unlucky in that he lost his life because of this spiral Maradona however is sort of the tightrope if you will um but I do find that those two athletes have so many similarities in the way that they're just so two of the most awe-inspiring athletes that I've ever watched doing their respective sports, but they, they share this utter tragedy about their lives, um, which is so interesting. And so it really draws you in. Yeah, and and there's uh, also the kind of slightly uh, nefarious side of things as well. They both had 
There's both spe- the speculation both had ties to the mafia. Exactly, That's right, isn't it? There's, there you went, go. Maradona well, was I mean, in Napoli. So Maradona's 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 lie, uh, ties are, are are well known. They're they're not speculation. Quite established, yeah. yeah quite established. If you've watched uh, Asif Kapadia's excellent documentary on Maradona, you you'll see that in full swing. Pantani's are a little bit more murky, and there's it's very much more speculation and claim and yeah and rumor. But yeah, definitely, mm. definitely. So that's a really good, in, really good point, James. That's another good documentary, actually. Um, we shouldn't be banging on about football too much. So just to offset that, the Pantani yes. documentary, yeah, which came out a few years ago. Um, I only just watched it recently, and it's really good. It's again just tells a tells a great story. I mean, it's a sad story, but it's a great story. Mm. Uh, and you just got to love his dear little nonna. Uh, sorry, not Nonna, that's uh, his grandma, his, his mother. And she fought valiantly in his death, basically, to still keep his name untarnished. Yeah. And that's really heartbreaking, that element of the story. 100%. Uh, yeah, a mother that outlives her son and, and having to defend him from a lot of slander um, and a lot of this, yeah, tarnishing of his I, reputation. Well, but he still remains really a, a big, big favourite, doesn't he? He's, he, he's one of these guys that never... They love him, absolutely love him. Yeah, he he kind of like we know now that he wasn't a clean athlete. That's established, but because of how he performed and how he rode a bike, he has he's given this sort of hero status. Um, but I kind of understand that because when I watch Marco Pantani ride a bike, he gives me the same feeling again to compare him to Maradona, where I'm left speechless by what he does. You know, I went back and I watched the stage to the Colefoniera from the 1999 Giro. And there's really grainy footage of it online. And it's not the best, but you see Pantani's attack and you see how Pantani rides up this mountain. And you're left awestruck by his ability to go up climbs so gracefully and with such ease. And yeah, I was so I was I was left so impressed and so awed by it and I you know I'm I'm quite young so I didn't get to see Pantani race live ever. I never I never experienced Pantani while he was doing what he was in nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine. So I all my memories of him are from going back and revisiting his career and he the way he rides and the way that he approached the sport and some of the stuff that he would do in races there's not a single rider at the moment that, that gives me that same sort of sense of sort of imagination and and enjoyment, really, which is a shame. Yeah. But he is a, a fantastic, fantastic athlete. But anyway, Joe, back to your uh, Colle de Fonniera. Yeah. Um, I must commend you. Thank you. On your pronunciation. I've been really trying. Um, I did actually ask you before this, didn't I, how you said Fonniera. Yeah. And I think I'm not even saying it... 45% correctly, but it's better than I was. No, you're getting um, there. You're getting there. Was, was where I was at before, I think. But um, I want to just uh, you know, kind of uh, get a feeling of whether or not I should go there. Right. Okay, so you travel a lot for work yeah. to cycle. We travel a lot in spare time to cycle as well. Mm. You've ridden various places. Where does this rank in where you've ridden in terms of best climbs? Mm-hmm. And what, what would you put above it so or maybe you know maybe it's number one i don't know so tell me tell me why i should go it's in italy right so 
the food and the drink is the best in the world. What are you trying to say? Um, if it's not in I mean, what I'm saying, what, what about climbs in France? Is the food and the drink not uh, the best in the world there? Well, no, well, no, because the best food in the world is <laughs> Italian food, right? <laughs> no, so, I think I reckon. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Mainly just because the French get um, pretty far in the culinary. Uh, yeah, like food in, in France herb, is great. They coffee. It's not coffee. No, it's not. Coffee's not there. In it's France. not stereotyped no, for not. a reason. Terrible coffee in France. Great coffee in Italy. Terrible it, coffee in France. But f- you get good food in France. But food can be. What I find with France is food can be quite hit. Or, food can be hit or miss in France. In Italy, food isn't hit and miss. Food's hit every time. Unless you're in the absolute center of Rome, I can guarantee that you're getting a good meal in Italy, right? And by good meal, I mean average, like above average to very good. And there's no not a lot of money often as well. That's the other thing. Not a lot of money, right? So this is the thing about the Fonera as well is its food and drink in that area is incredible. One, the first reason is because of a cheese called Fromaggio Castelmagno, right? Castelmagno is the name of the region which encompasses all the little villages on the ascent of the Fonera. So Chiapi, Campolonino and Pradaleves are all in this little commune called Castelmagno. And along this ascent are dairy farms and they all make a cheese called Fromaggio Castelmagno and it's the only place in the world that you can buy this cheese. And along the climb, you'll notice various stores that are selling this this cheese. We bought some, right, on our ride and I took it home with me and I left it in the fridge for a few weeks and what happens is it goes quite bitter, like a, like a parmesan. And it is just incredible over a plate of tagliatelle. Like you just make a simple. Well, what I, what I did was I did a simple tagliatelle. Simple pasta. Kind of boiled it. Yeah, simple pasta. Eight minutes. Left it a little bit al dente. Then afterwards, drained it. Stirred in some garlic infused olive oil. Uh, chopped up a chili, a fresh chili. Put it in there. Put it on the plate, and then I grated over some of this uh, fromaggio castelmagno, and it is unbelievable. Yeah, that sounds delicious. That sounds delicious. Absolutely delicious. Simple, yeah, simple and, things in life. And that's Cheese and you can and buy it like I bought. I bought five hundred grams and just chucked it in the back pocket and finished a ride, and I took it home with me, and it went a little bit like it. Obviously, squashed a little bit because of the heat, but it'll be fine. Um, well, so you you bought this during the ride and you cycled up the yeah the arrow with yeah it yeah and pocket. I took it with me and I took it home. Do you think that's like, what changed its uh, its structure more than putting it in the fridge when you got back? No, because it was fine. Because then I got it back to the I got it back to the hotel that we were staying in. I put it, I I asked if I could put it in the fridge there and they did. And then I took it home with me on the flight and I put it straight in the fridge. And I kind of I had a little bit when I got home to show people what it tasted like, but then. I left it for a while, a good while just to because I didn't sort of make any food in which I thought oh I need some of that cheese and then I made this tagliatelle and I was like oh, I'm going to put some of this cheese on it and it was delicious. Did you eat it on your ride? When you when you're in Italy did you, did you <laughs> No, no, uh, because controversial attending. um controversial I don't like cold I don't like cheese that isn't on hot food. Interesting. So, but th- that's complete I don't want to go down that tangent because we could be here for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, but I can, I, can I, I, I younger, like, yeah, as a younger man, not, I, I felt the same. Melted cheese was okay, 
raw cheese. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know I'm, I mean? I'm really cool. Like a parmesan, or like a mozzarella. Like, but it has to be cooked. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like knocking off lumps of cheddar and eating it in the fridge, you know. Um, but You'll another good there. thing. You'll get I, I will get there. The palate will change. So as you mentioned, yep. the coffee is also incredible. There's a little cafe. So they don't do flat whites in Italy, though, do they? They don't, but it's fine because I don't drink flat whites. So I'm very much of the Italian opinion that you know you have milk and coffee before 11 a.m. and then after that it's just black coffee. Um, normally a single espresso. I'll admit when I stopped halfway up the climb, I had a double espresso. Um, because you know I, I was going to need the caffeine wow. um exactly and then another great thing about the area is that well two more great things about the area so Cuneo which is like the big city at the bottom of the Foniero it's about half an hour ride is known for these things called Cunesi al Roma right and right. basically it's meringue injected with rum infused chocolate praline Wow. Yeah, it's a good. Okay. It's as yep. good as it sounds. Yeah. So you buy it. They're quite small. They're not that big. And you basically bite into the meringue, and you get the crunch, and you get the good texture of the meringue, and then you're immediately like punched in the face with the booziness of the rum, and it's like sw- the chocolate sweet, and there's the sugar that's all sweet, and then you get that kind of warm burning sensation from the rum. And it is, oh, it's unbelievable. It's like the perfect post-ride bit of food, in my opinion. It's absolutely delicious. And you only, you only get it in Cuneo. It's a, it's a dessert that was designed, like curated in Cuneo. Um, And it's basically the only place you'll be able to buy this sort of delicacy. But it's so good. And they're so cheap as well. They're, they're like a euro, if that. I'm assuming they don't. They don't sound like they travel that well in the jersey pocket, though. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't try and bring any of those home for the uh, for the family. I just <laughs> I polished a couple off after the ride. Um, and the other big, the other big thing, the other reason why riding the Colifoniera is worth it is because you're in Piedmont, right? And what's in Piedmont? It's Barolo country, the king of the wine. Um, have you had Barolo, James? I have had Barolo, yeah. It is uh it's a bold wine, isn't it? It's a big wine. It is a it's a it's a big wine. It's an expensive wine. It's a very popular wine. It's kind of Barolo is that kind of wine that you go to an Italian restaurant in the UK and it's the expensive bottle of wine. It's it's the one that's sort of like thirty, forty quid, not eighteen, nineteen pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's like a a Bordeaux or a, I don't know. I don't know much about wine. Chateau Neuf de Paps, one of those. It's a it's a thing, yeah. isn't it? it? Only comes from a certain place, and therefore they charge you an absolute. Well, there's a, yeah. There's only is, eleven. There's it. only actually it's, eleven villages that create uh, that have the grape, the uh, Nebulio grape that creates Barolo wine. So it is pretty rare, um, but it's really easy to come by in Cuneo and the surrounding areas because obviously it's their wine. And it's not that expensive. And you can get yourself a good bottle of Barolo for like 10 euros, 15 euros um, <laughs> in a restaurant, which you'd definitely play double for in the UK. Yeah, no, absolutely, no doubt. 
that's yeah, the other great thing about Italy, isn't it? Mm. Cheap wine, good wine, cheap wine. And um, do you want me to leave you with one last interesting fact about the Colle Fognera and its surrounding area, James? Yes, please leave me with one last interesting fact about the Colle Fognera and the surrounding area. So the best thing about cycling in the Piedmont region around Cuneo, etc., is that just outside of Cuneo, in a place called Dogliani, which is about 20 minutes drive from Cuneo. So if you go to the Fognera and you stay for a couple of days for riding, etc., you'll be able to, you won't need to visit this place, but it's home of something called uh, to the late uh, Michele Ferrero, right? So he inherited his father, Pietro's bakery in 1949. Uh, and then it just so happens that he transformed it into what is Europe's second largest confectionery company. That's right, James. Ferrero is from this part of Italy, Cuneo. Um, and what do we know? Ferrero as in Ferrero Rocher? Yes. What do we know Ferrero from? No way. Ferrero Rocher. But it also turns out that they are the inventors of the Tic Tac, the Kinder Egg, and Nutella. I did know that. I did know that about Nutella. Yep. Third... But not the Kinder Egg. Not the Kinder Egg or the, or the yeah. Tic Tac. I, I was really surprised by the fact that they created and invented the Tic Tac. So they're the second biggest confectioner in Europe now. Um, and they're also responsible for consuming 30% of the world's hazelnut production. Wow. Which is a lot. Goodness me. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you... Who knew that Nutella was spons- responsible for such such mono monoculture devastation as the as the <laughs> hazelnut farming exactly wow and it's it's incredible and so when you go when you go into like corner shops around there there's there's more kinder buenos and kinder eggs than you can shake a stick at they're everywhere um so see now you've now you've what was the what was that snack that you the <laughs> confectionery snack with the rum rum praline inside the, it? The rumor. Uh, so yeah, that one, uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce that. That sounds <laughs> we in terms of the construction, that's a similar, that's similar to a Ferrero Rocher, isn't it? It is. It you've is quite, yeah, outer, yeah, yeah, no, it is. And you've got the praline, praline middle. Oh, that's obviously a thing. I mean, they really have, that is a winning combination. That crunch, the crunch and the cream is the bit though. They're great combinations to have. That's a great combination to have in any kind of confection. And I wonder if that was maybe, uh, one of the originals. That and the Ferrero Rocher, yeah, definitely potentially because they are very similar. You just don't get that that boozy kick from the rum in a Kinder, yeah. Bueno, obviously. I mean, you couldn't be serving you couldn't be serving uh, yeah, Kinder Buenos, could you, to little kids with rum in it, or even Ferrero Rocher's uh, ambassadors' receptions filled with rum, and anyone <laughs> would be off their off their yeah. faces, spilling <laughs> spilling all those state secrets to one another whilst the uh, secret diplomats listened. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely not. Um, James, should we move on to talk about Eddie Merckx? I think we, I, yeah, I think we're going to have to because uh, I need to go away and, and find my nearest corner shop for the essential journey of buying some Ferrero Rocher pretty <laughs> soon. So, yeah, let's get Merckx done, and I can go go confectionery shop. Excellent. So. We're going to talk a bit about Eddie Merckx bikes, uh, mainly because, James, you recently reviewed the Eddie Merckx 525 disc, right, for the magazine. In fact, yep, you reviewed it for it is, yeah. the 100th issue, the same issue of the Colle Um 
But it's quite interesting because Eddie Merck's bikes, you have a little bit of a love affair of them, if I'm correct. Uh, I do, yeah, because I still I still own it. In fact, Eddie Merck, the first road bike I bought uh, was an Eddie Merck's Alu Sprint, an aluminium bike uh, that was from eBay, and I can't. It was probably in total I managed to build it up over the course of a few months on a shoestring budget because I was at uni. So I came to road cycling quite late. I was into mountain biking before that, but I thought I'd need to get myself a road bike. And I didn't know anything about road bikes, but somehow I did know who Eddie Merckx was. Yeah. So when I saw this bike come up on eBay, I thought, that's got to be a good bike because it's got that bloke's name on it. Because you don't have that in mountain biking. You don't have a brand that's named after a famous mountain bike rider or not really. There's no big mountain bike brands that are named <coughs> after riders, which you do have in road cycling. Yeah. So I bought this bike, uh, probably put it together for a couple of hundred quid. The back end is technically straight, but the bloke who welded it must've been, it must've been his last <laughs> day uh, and a Friday afternoon. And they were going down to the pub for his leaving drinks. Cause it is really, um, you know, excuse my French on the piss is, is the technical <laughs> term. But it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a kind of sandy colored bike. Yeah. A bit creamy, almost a little bit beige, I dare say. But it has a car it had a carbon fork and again at that point I was I was blown away. An, an ITM carbon fork, carbon. isn't it? It is an ITM carbon fork. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you've seen it, Jay. You've seen well, it. Well, so I still is, ride this bike This today. Eddie Merckx Alu Sprint is a, a fixture of the cyclist office because it's your commuter bike, James. So I've seen that bike yeah, every, yeah. basically every day for the last three years, give or take. Um, because it's despite... getting a bit triggers broom, yeah. So it's got it's got it's had a, a, a consistent something breaks and it gets a new something. Uh, most of the time, it won't match, uh, and it will work for a while. I, I did for a while. Um, I did have some uh, carbon tie chain rings on there that I was testing because I was just riding it as a commuter it's actually quite a good mule to test things on a day-to-day basis for longevity as opposed to anything else and we might have to actually beep out the bit where i say carbon tie but it's a carbon fiber and titanium chain ring which i managed to snap in half clean in half on that bike Um, probably because (laughs) i'd like to say i'd like to say i was putting too much power down but i think ultimately um quite a weak product i mean let's just say uh, that you're really powerful because you are yeah no let's just go with that super powerful rider yeah so uh, so that's where the love affair with Eddie Merck's bikes came from. And then as I kind of found my feet a little bit more in the sport road cycling, not just the bikes, I kind of found out a bit more about Eddie Merck's. Mm. And, you know, like anyone, I, got, I don't know, you know, you try, you try and find the non-obvious stuff about some new passion you have, but... To begin with, you latch onto the obvious stuff. You latch onto the greatest. You're a, a glory hunter, right? So I kind of, in my head, aligned myself with Eddie Merckx. I supported Eddie Merckx. I wanted to know more about him as a way into the sport because he was the sport's all-time greatest cyclist. Still um, is. Absolutely end of. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then subsequent bicycle purchases were Eddie Merckx's. Mm. Uh, so I've had a couple. One is in Italy at the moment um, in a repair shop with the cracked head tube again probably because i'm putting out way too much power and another one uh, i saw the other one a few months ago in uh, in london 
I saw the guy I sold it to. Oh, really? Uh, I recognized the bike first. Yeah, it was a, an EMX 3, so uh, a carbon Eddie Merckx, one of the ones from about 2010. So I should say the Alu Sprint, I mean, that's probably almost as old as you are, Joe. So 20-odd years. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a point where Merckx obviously moved into carbon fiber, and the MX3 was one of the ones that I guess Quickstep would have been racing on in 2011. I yeah, um, uh, I famously their worst and... ever season as a team. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny because <laughs> they were a very successful, and they are a very successful team. And we even published a piece recently in Cyclist, which, uh, uh, well, I mean, I was going to say it alluded to it didn't allude to anything. It was a on it was a, a profile on Tom Boonen yeah. and Tom Boonen said <laughs> Eddie Merck's bikes that season were the worst bikes we'd ever ridden. <laughs> they kept on breaking. Hence why they only won, so I think, 11 definitely... races. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, either side of that, they were really killing it, weren't they? 20, 2010 was a good year for them. 2012, they moved over to specialized bikes. Um, Boonen's yeah. getting the, did the Flanders Roubaix or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, a special place in my heart for for Eddie Merckx bikes. But they sure. were. So but the, but, that's, but the, the issue is, is that Eddie Merckx bikes were they were the bee's knees in the nineties, right? And the early in the late eighties. Um, yeah, they were certainly very desirable, and mm. they were ridden by big teams. I mean, that's that's. I remember think, the Motorola okay. team riding Merckx bikes. Like that's that's yeah. my big memory of Merckx bikes. Except from now, where AG Two R. Who else wrote? Who's who's. Who do you think is the most infamous rider of a Merckx bike that isn't Eddie Merckx himself? Because Eddie Merckx was riding yeah. Eddie Merckx branded bikes when he was racing, but made, even though he wasn't. But made by Hugo de Rosa, right? Yep, and occasionally by Ernesto Colnago as well. Only who, the best. Only the best. Uh, Merckx is our our record bike. I mean, yeah, seriously, only the best, right? So, so the the rider that I associate with Merckx bikes the most would probably be. Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, as a Motorola rider. Correct. That's that's absolutely what I'm, correct. So that's Lance like, Armstrong, yeah, and also uh, Jan Ulrich. Jan Ulrich, yeah, was racing, uh, racing team Telecom, um, and some of the bikes that you may see Armstrong riding in pictures for Motorola, so they'd be white, blue, and red, and they'd say Calloy on them, not Eddie Merckx. So they were made by so. This is the funny thing about the cycling industry. Back in the late 60s, 70s, when Merckx is riding, he's riding a bike that bears his name, which is just kind of weird, really. You don't see that these days, Mm. which wasn't made by him or a company that he even had. It was made by someone like Hugo de Rosa. Uh, And then fast forward 10, 15 years, and then you've got an Eddie Merckx bike, which is made by Eddie Merckx's company, which is then rebranded Calloy, which is effectively a bit of a walmart sort of brand in brazil uh and they just weren't up to you know making good bikes that were race level specs so they went to mercs who had previously had the contract and said you'll basically buy your frames off you but we'll stick our stickers on them if that's cool yeah and that was all fine but you can't technically you can't really do that these days because what a pro race is has to be available to the public so you can't have custom stuff you can't Mm. have stuff that isn't what it says it is underneath the stickers. So when, so like Merck's 
obviously has this bike brand and Motorola rode them. I remember 7-Eleven famously rode Merck's bikes as well. Um, yep. And one thing that we know about Eddie Merck's or that you should know about Eddie Merck's is that he's an absolute stickler for his own bike. So he famously would have, he worked so closely with people like DeRosa and Ernesto Colnago to set up his own geometry and bikes. And he was always tinkering with stuff like saddle height, handlebar position even during races sometimes there's some great clips of him riding stuff like parry bay where he's sort of hanging onto the a team car as they adjust his saddle and stuff for him so how much involvement did eddie merck's have with eddie merck's bikes well so this is this is from the horse's mouth right we've we visited the magazine uh, sorry the magazine's visited the merck's factory in belgium um and I was lucky enough to go and also to meet him there at one point to interview him. So I did ask him this because that was actually my opening gambit. Eddie, you're the guy that got me into cycling because I bought a bike with your name on it. And he kind of went, huh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> but he was very pleasant when I told him <laughs> told him that. And um, and so, yeah, that was uh, top of my list of questions to ask. And the an- the answer is that he obviously is not going to be he he wasn't there mitering tubes and wielding a brazing torch and mm. making these frames because they were still frames back in the day but what he did do he took that meticulous approach to his bicycles into uh manufacturing bicycles so he did his due diligence and then some so he went to italy and he went to find de rosa and he said look i'm gonna so this is ugo de rosa who's mm. the de rosa father there are now three DeRosa sons, aren't there? There's Cristiano, um, there's Damiano, and then there's one more whose name escapes me, and they all still make bikes. This great bike-making family. Yeah. And he said, teach me teach me what you know. I want to set my own bike company up. So this is like 1978-ish. It's a couple of years after Eddie Merckx has retired, and he's wondering what to do with his life. So he kind of like worked, he learned the business, I suppose, yeah, from Derosa and also from other people. He did. Uh, he travelled around. He said, and he just spoke to anyone that he knew connected to bikes, and you know, to learn like you know, how, who's the guy at Columbus Tubing that I need to know if I want to get Columbus Tubing for my bikes? Hmm. Uh, who's the guy at Campagnolo that I need to know that I'm going to get the campy stuff from? How much are we paying for a group set? All those sorts of things. Yeah. So he set himself up with the business knowledge, but he uh, only realistically brought some design elements to it famously his geometry Mm. so apparently he was known around the factory um as mr geometry he was a real stickler for it um and that and his only other stipulation were he really always wanted his bikes to be safe so this is slightly second hat so so famously he was racing uh one year with uh louis um louis accardo um, a Spanish rider who was really pushing Merckx to the wire in the Tour de France. And uh, sorry, not Cardo. That's the Acana. delivery company. Acana. Yeah, <laughs> Louis Acana. And he was he was uh, he was really pushing Eddie Merckx to the wire here. And Acana was fa- a great climber and famously was a, a real stickler for a very light kit. Anyway, Acana crashes on a corner on a descent. Merckx overtakes him and he takes yellow. Merckx is so upset on Akana's behalf that he uh, refuses to wear the jersey I think the next day but at the same time Akana's out of the race and Merckx later 
says that, well, you know, basically a Karna's bike was too light. Okay. He was going around a corner and the light bike had too much flex in it and it uh, got developed speed wobble and that's what took out, that's, that, that's, that's why he fell. Merckx, on the other hand, uh, would always make sure his bikes were very safe. He was an excellent descender. Yeah. And uh, so to that end, some Merckx bikes, bikes were known for being a little bit heavy, especially when carbon came along. But um, no, in general, you, yeah, back to, back to your original question. He, yeah, he had uh, a decent amount to do with the brand. And for a while, the actual workshop was in effectively his garden. He had a, a farmyard, I think, uh, just outside, or a farm, sorry, just outside Brussels. Mm. So across the across the courtyard, I remember seeing this documentary of Eddie Merckx peering out of his window into the sort of <laughs> stables where you can see people walking around with frames, and they would make him um, make him basically on his doorstep. So he had a lot of involvement wow. there. Um, as the brand grew, he would get other companies to make the bikes for him, uh, specifically Italian companies because they had a lot of expertise building bikes, um, yeah. and they'd be called Tazisti, which is basically a contractor, a subcontractor in uh, in Italian. And so you would go along with your blueprints to these guys that made bikes for anybody and you would order, I don't know, 200 bikes and they would build them for you and you'd get them painted up and they'd look like they came from Brussels or they would look exactly like the ones that Telecom were riding that you actually did build in Brussels, but these ones are being sold in the shop. So it's that kind of thing. And we, we did visit yeah. one of those places too. And, but the brands, uh, the number the of bikes... Like- Go on. I was just going to say. I was just going like, to say the, the number of bikes that Merckx was making at one point is was phenomenal. One, this one contractor that's still around now called uh, Lava Mech in uh, Veneto. They were making eight hundred bikes a week, eight hundred frames a week for Merckx. Wow! And that's just one place, and that's because yeah. Merckx couldn't keep up with production. So this is, this brings me on to my next question, which is like, so Eddie Merckx was massive that Eddie Merckx's bikes were massive and everyone wanted to own an Eddie Merckx bike. And they were really big at the same time as Colnago bikes, as Pinarello bikes in the 90s. But if you look at it now, Eddie Merckx bikes aren't a bike that people want to own. And while brands like Trek... Oh, Joe, that's that's a, well, that's a cutting okay, comment. Okay, l- let me explain. Other bike brands like Trek, Cannondale, and Specialized came on the scene. The American dudes, Canyon from Germany. Colnago remained a really big bike brand as it was in the 90s. Bianchi is still a very popular bike brand. But now, in 2020, Eddie Merck's bikes aren't as big as they were in the 90s, right? So, But why is that? What happened to Eddie Merck's bikes? To From them being basically one of the most popular bike brands in the entire world to quite a niche brand right now that has changed. What, what was it that changed? Uh, I think the simple answer is uh, carbon fiber. Yeah. And with carbon fiber came uh, a lot of far, well, yeah, far East manufacture. So initially you have Merck's bikes being made in Brussels um, and or in Belgium and also parts of Italy. And that was a real badge of honor as well. If you into Merck's frames, Having a Merck's frame that was built in Belgium is uh, is very desirable compared to a Merck's frame like my one, my aluminium one, which is made in Taiwan. So it was that movement of expertise uh, and material changes over to the Far East. And by Merck's own admission, 
um, he said he, you know, he, it just became too much, and he was traveling a lot, and he was trying to see these different suppliers, and he wasn't really involved on a hands-on basis with the actual bikes he was producing. Mm. And other companies, meanwhile, were kind of racing away with the new technology, and Merck's was trying to play catch-up. And actually, although your brands like Colnago or Pinarello or Bianchi, you know, they're still big hitters and they're like you say they are very desirable they also struggled to keep up but they somehow managed to do it whereas there was unfortunately i think money issues that prevented the speed of change and also eddie himself thinking i'm getting older and i'd like to pass on the company to somebody and he has a a daughter and a a sabine i think she's called but anyway axel his son Axel Merckx is a famous yeah. as a, a cyclist as well. Yeah, state, he tour, kind of hoped. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he yeah he can he confided in this interview with us um, that he had rather hoped that Axel might take on the business, but Axel wanted to race, and so he didn't have a natural successor. The company was hemorrhaging money, and Merckx just said, "You know what? I'm out," and that was 2008. So the company changed hands and. It just took them a while to find their financial feet. And in that time, you know, 2008 was the real boom beginning for carbon fiber bikes. Yeah. And if you weren't kind of on that train, then you were left behind. And without going off on one about how factories and stuff work, you get your frames made by a contractor in the Far East. And there are only so many good factories out there. And if their order books are filled with other brands then you're going to be waiting or you're going to a slightly lesser factory. So then you've got issues with quality control, etc. You know, there are so many reasons why a brand like this fails. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it came down to uh, not being able to keep up at the same time as not having enough money to be able to keep up, I think it's fair to say. Which is sad because then a couple of years ago, the brand almost went under completely, didn't it? So the Eddie Merckx bikes, as we, uh, as we know it, it almost disappeared, right? Well, yeah. So this won't be lost on a lot of keen uh, sports, keen cyclist fans out there, uh, cycling fans out there, that the last year's um, Eddie Merckx Stocku, it's called a Stocku 95 yeah, bike, yeah, yeah. very suspiciously like a, uh, a Ridley Helium. Mm. And that's because Ridley, uh, Ridley's parent company, which is called Race Productions, so they're also built based in Belgium. Ridley, obviously another big Belgian brand. Uh, they bought Eddie Merckx. Uh, they rescued it, effectively. It, Eddie Merckx bicycles previously had been owned by a consortium that also owned some uh, Belgian beer brands, and before that by a bloke who made his money in uh, shoes. So you could say it probably wasn't owned by people who knew much about the bike industry. Yeah. So hopefully now... It's in a far, far better place with Ridley. Um, but again, to be able to keep up with the Joneses, to be able to produce a bike for uh, AG2R um, for that season as AG2R sponsors, uh, which Eddie Merckx are at the moment, um, they just they just didn't have enough time. So they had to take a, a pre-existing bike, which was a Ridley Helium, and paint it, um, paint it up as Eddie Merckx and invent this new Eddie Merckx model. Amazing. But for 2020, they are bringing out, you know, they, they're entirely unique bikes to the brand. So the 525, which is the one I've been testing, named after the number of uh, professional victories that Eddie Merckx chalked up. Incredible. That's uh, 
a unique Merck's, Merck's bike designed from the ground up. And there are others in the range that will be added um, added as you know, as the season wears on. So it's in a far healthier place. It's gone from just being uh, somebody's registered trademark with some plans in a desk drawer to actually having full team, you know, protein sponsorship and genuinely exciting bike designs. Um, if, you know, Google 525 uh, and have a look and see what you think. It is a divisive yeah. looking bike. Or buy a, buy then, a, you know, a, a Pinarello issue 100 Dogma. cyclist and read your very own excellent review of it as well. I didn't want to toot my own trumpet, Joe, but yes, of course, you could also buy um, Cyclists and read about it there. But um, yes, uh, I'm really, I'm really pleased to see where the where the brand is at the moment because it does have that special place in my heart. And again, a bit like we we're talking about with Pantani, there's something very emblematic of an era in an Eddie Merckx bike. So there were enough liveries like distinct liveries you know that black and pink of telecom and white and those bikes that they were riding they just they're at the forefront of my mind when i kind of think about you know, those mid-90s riders uh st- still spinning around on their steel yeah. bikes and their eddie merck's and bikes on that lovely note of eddie merck's bikes coming back to fruition um and to popularity i think we're going to end that episode there james uh couldn't get didn't have time to get on to uh, talking about some sponsors. We'll leave that maybe till next episode. Um, but either way, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, as ever, subscribe um, at all the good places where you can get podcasts. That's Spotify, Google, Stitcher, you know, wherever you find podcasts will be there. Subscribe, leave a comment, review us, let us know how it was. Um, and do check back because we'll be coming back with another episode soon. Uh, but for now, James, I'll bid you adieu. Um, and I'll chat to you soon. Adieu, adieu. Yeah. See you in year. Yeah. Goodbye. Take care.